What is up, everyone, and welcome into the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike, the show that explores the topics the drummers love the most. I'm Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host is Mike Dawson, managing editor for Modern Drummer Magazine. In this episode, we're going to talk about Alan Iverson's favorite word, practice. We'll also dig into the January issue of MD and talk about the man on the cover, Mr. Dave Weckl. We'll talk about miking your kit. We'll start with one mic and possibly build up into two mic setups and just explore what it's like to do that and what kind of sound you can expect from that. And then in our January gear review section, we're going to get into the Craviato Vintage Series kit, which Mike got to play and he got to review and check out. So I'm really excited to hear what he thought of that kit because I haven't played that yet, but I do have my personal opinions on Poplar drums. So Mike Dawson, how you doing, buddy? All's good. So our first topic is going to be practice. What was your experiences like? I mean, I know that what, what my experiences were like for practicing, but I mean, was there a time where you started to realize man, I really actually need to organize my practice. Yeah, actually, probably more the opposite. I was probably okay. too organized. Um, I came up in a very classical trained, so everything I learned was out of method books, and it was reading, and, and it was very structured. So I approached drum set the same way. I got every book I could find. I just played it page to page. Um, and when I was done the book, I was done, and I moved on to the next thing. It wasn't until much later in college that I went back and said, you know what, maybe I should try practicing some records, see what that does. And that was what, for me, was like, whoa, okay, I should have been doing this my entire life. Yeah, I think playing to albums is definitely one of those things that uh, is eye-opening. You know, you can start to play something, and then there's just so many so many levels to it where maybe you're playing the notes correctly, but you can't get it to sound the way that person sounded. And then trying to get it to sound the way that the drummer sounded on the track opens up the idea that maybe you need to change your drums themselves, change right. the tuning, muffle more, muffle less. You know, So I think playing along to albums can really open up a lot of things to people. Yeah, it's pretty much everything is there. Well, I had a method where I would play along to a track until I found something I couldn't do, and then I would create a practice routine out of that thing. That's a nugget right there. Yeah, that was it. I would, just, I would try to play along, just play time the first time through, second time try to catch a couple other little things, and there would always be something to fill or a a rhythmic hit or just the groove itself I had to break it down and, and spend a couple of days just practicing that one bit yeah man well I think too like right now we have a lot of people that are using kind of a crutch drumming thing where they always play along to another drummer but they're trying to learn everything note for note and then move on and to me when I was practicing growing up and even still when I find that little thing in a song that I can't do like you said I make a practice routine out of that concept so I don't try to learn the fill note for note. Um, I kind of learn, okay, what made that fill possible? So my first thought is, in that lick, or or it could even be the groove, what is the overriding subdivision? What is my vertical grid of time that I can you know, sing in my head? And it might be 16th note triplets. And then I break it down and think, was it linear or nonlinear? And that's giving me a category. Now, now I'm starting to form a category of it's nonlinear 16th note triplet based improvisation that I'm clearly having trouble with and then I try to think was it melodic or was it just random showing off um, is it possible on my drum set you know a lot of times I remember as a kid I'm sure you had the same thing but you know we would listen to Neil Peart and I I don't have that many drums right so I had to think like how am I gonna how am I gonna make this work with my one 12 inch tom and my 16 inch floor tom you know yeah I set up anything I could to try to get close to the, the amount of drums 
I set whatever. up both kits, and both <laughs> kits were the same sizes. So I had 12, 12, 13, 13, 16, 16, and two, you know, and it went uh, Silver Sparkle Wine Red, Silver Sparkle Wine Red. Nice. You know, it was like, I had a Jugs percussion kit and a West percussion kit. I so. remember even taping metal rods to cymbal stands so I could get one more cymbal up. <laughs> That's awesome. That is, yeah, I, I did, uh, I wanted a 10-inch Tom so bad, and my parents wouldn't get it for me, so I cut the eight and the 12 off of my roto toms. So I j- like with a hacksaw. So I just had the 10 all by itself, put it next to my 12. <laughs> um, yeah, I think with practicing, you know, you definitely have to think of a few things, th- a few things go into it, which is how long are you going to practice for? And I, I get a lot of questions from students about, you know, how long should I practice? And my, my thought is, well, how long do you have, you know, um, right. a yeah. father of four that has a full-time job doesn't have eight hours a day to play drums, but I do know, I remember talking to Benny Greb when he first had his son, Mo, and I was like, man, you're obsessed with practice. What's your practice routine like now? And he said, it's, it's much better, you know? And I, uh, I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, I have, I don't have any time to practice. So when I do, it is so unbelievably focused because I only have an hour a day to get in what I used to do in six hours. Um, he's like, so I've kind of streamlined everything. What about your personal practice? I mean, you know, most people, if they haven't seen you play it, they should know that you're, you're an amazing drummer, so you clearly still play the drums. But during the years that you were really growing the fastest as a drummer, what was your practice routine like? Like I said, I, I came up in a classical world, so it was usually split between snare drum technique, either drumline style or classical. A to like I would do that every day. I would warm up and I would, I would do technique workouts on a pillow. I had a whole, whole bunch of little routines, so I'd do like a half hour on a pillow. I do half hour on a pad playing playing some of my lesson material and on drum set I would just go through books and in, in the early stages I would just go straight I, the new breed was the first book I ever bought in seventh grade so I'd, every day I would just torture myself trying to get through that thing and then in grad school my teacher Mark DiCiani showed me this chart that he had made which does exactly what you're saying take the amount of time you have and you divide it up into these four categories technique repertoire musicality and soloing and then free play so if you got an hour you do 15 minutes of each if you got three hours so you just divide it up that way sure yeah i think it's really hard to put more importance on something unless it happens to be the thing that directly relates to your drumming desires so you know speed for me is much less important than improvisation and creativity because i i'm not trying to go very fast um even as a kid even the rock that i played was more of the deftonesy slower rock so i was never playing metal where if i have a student that's really into you know fast up tempo metal or punk then i I do increase their amount of time that they work on their speed because it's directly relative to their dreams so it's like okay well you do need to do this a lot um and so i think you know that's another thing that's hard when you to practice properly i feel like you need to decide on that the day before like when i sit down at the drum set it's like walking into a grocery store with no list and no budget it's too many options and i'm paralyzed by it right but if i kind of make my list the night before i'm clear-headed and i can think okay honestly what is important to me right now and then i'll think like man i don't i don't know why my chops don't have any groove to them so then i'll i can write down on a piece of paper work on improvisation while keeping two and four backbeat Right. You know, um, things like that. So I think that's one thing that a lot of people need to start doing is start creating your practice routine the night before you practice or, you know, hours before you practice rather than just sitting down in the kit. Because 
like I said, that many options, it's just it's just paralyzing, and you end up just jamming and, and doing self medicated fills that make you feel good about being alive, and uh, you play the licks you can already play. You got to factor that in too. But the chart that I that uh, my teacher gave me, we would write out the entire month, so it would be like a whole week's worth of material. We would do it. We would do it all. He'd be like, by the end of the month, what do you want to be able to do? Okay, well, let's break it down. Oh man, that's so cool. What a what a great way to go about it. Yeah, it was it was restricting, but it was also, I mean, I never thought that way. So I never thought, okay, I want to be able to play 350 beats per minute swing by the end of the month. So right. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to play and work my way up. I'm going to play along to some Blakey tracks and some Philly Joe Jones tracks. And I think practicing comes down to things like that, like deciding I'm going to do this. I'm going to be able to do this. It's it's what I call the desired result technique, which is figure out your desired result and then create exercises to achieve that result so if your desired result is to play you know double bass at 200 bpm 16th notes at 200 bpm then at least you know what you're trying to do and then you can actually check it off your list when you achieve that a lot of times people don't know what the desired result is um, and they get so hung up on technique that they never ever start to practice because i mean i'll just receive question after question like hey i'm really trying to get my bass drum technique faster or my speed faster should i buy Jojo Mayer's new DVD should I do heel up should I do heel down and I'm like you should hit the bass drum and just go and you eventually dude you're 6'11 like I can't tell you what to do like your feet are size 15 so my technique won't work for you and Jojo's might not either but I mean I want my students to be aware of techniques but I don't want them to be obsessed thinking if I that's the magic pill it's like the magic pill is practicing every time yeah, that was my, my teacher in high school. I would go in and be like, I don't know what to practice. He was like, just practice, man. It doesn't matter. Just <laughs> practice. <laughs> practice anything. Just sit down. Because usually the ADD kicks in and, and boredom will take you somewhere fun. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing, you know, a lot of times in clinics, uh, if I really want to shut down the Q&A section really fast, I'll just say, okay, I'll take any questions that can't be a- answered with the word practice. And then all the hands go down. Because <laughs> it's like... No matter what you're going to say, I'll just say practice, you know, like, how do I get faster? Practice. How do I have more groove? Practice. Whatever it is, practice. So, so before we move on, do you have any other kind of practice tidbits that might help people out there? Uh, I think we've kind of covered it. I mean, it's really just having a structure, have a plan, have a goal, figure out what kind of learner you are. I know for me, I'm, I'm an analytical, you know, I can, I can do the book thing. I can read really well. So the challenge for me was get the vocabulary orally transcribing by ear and not having to write it down that was what i needed to work on Um, so just find out what kind of learner you are i think is the best thing and and go to your weaknesses nice yeah i for me i'm kind of in the same boat i i can't watch somebody do something and then do it so for me watching the youtube world that's just pure inspiration usually it'll inspire me and then like i said i'll take that category that inspired me um, over you know halftime shuffle thing that I saw Stanton Moore do and I'll go to the kit and I'm not trying to copy Stanton I'm just inspired by what he was doing and then I kind of come up with my own thing from there um, and I think the other thing that a lot of people don't do and right now with technology there's no reason not to do it which is you know at some point in the practice record yourself um, depending on you know what you want to get better at for me I'm working hard on improvising and soloing so Usually the last 10 minutes of every practice, I just play an improvised drum solo and record it, and then I listen to it on the way home. And I get a whole different perspective from listening to me play drums than I do from playing them. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I've, I've improved so much just by having a studio in my house because I record everything. Yeah. 
and it's oh really yeah and i used to blame it on the latency i would blame it on this i'd blame it on that but it was really just i sucked yeah <laughs> that's the hardest one to just kind of swallow that you suck but you still can't give up it's like right. all right you suck because you're new at this or you haven't put the amount of effort into it i think that's the correlation for practicing that people have to realize too when when they think like oh man my fills suck and i always ask them like well how much time have you put into really making playing fills a craft the way you did your first couple basic rock beats or the songs you play with your band and it's like oh well, i don't ever practice it and it's like well then there's a correlation there between what you perceive to be sucking at and how much you put real real dedicated time into it you know yeah i've got a, a good example i i play rudimental solos as a warm-up every day and they're all double stroke rolls and like two weeks ago i'm like you know my single stroke rolls really stink like, oh, maybe it's because I've been playing nothing but double stroke rolls for like 10 years. <laughs> right. It could be that. Yeah. It's not the fact that your singles stink. They're just, they're fatigued compared to the rest of everything else that's gotten so much more time. I mean, I, I think that too, when people talk about their left hand being weak and I think like, well, what kind of music do you play? I play pop or rock or funk. And it's like, okay, so in every bar of groove, you have eight hits with your right hand and two with your left hand. So that's a four to one ratio that you're... Your, your dominant hand that doesn't even need the work is getting all the work, and then your hand that needs the work is just sitting there resting on your lap unless you hit two or four. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, I when we, going back to the speed thing, like I always would play uh, Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, left-hand lead. Nice. And I would just, you know, try to make it to the end of the song playing left-hand lead. Uh, basic rock beat, no fills, no nothing, but it, just trying to build that left hand up so it wasn't so kind of... So I didn't feel so right-hand dominant. I, I knew that my drum set had two sides to it, so I wanted to just be handed, not right-handed or left-handed. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into, um, in the January issue, you got the chance to interview one of the kind of greatest drummers of all time, Mr. Dave Weckl. How was that? Actually, I didn't do the story. Oh, you uh, didn't? Okay. No, Ilya Semkovsky did it. Um, but, I mean, it was, it was a long time coming. He hasn't been on the cover for 14 years, believe really? it or not. Yeah. Wow. He's one of those guys you think, oh, he's in the magazine all the time. But no, it's been since 2001 since he was wow. on the cover. That's, that's crazy. I never, I never would have thought that. Maybe just because he has so many Sabian ads and yeah. you know, Yamaha ads and stuff that you feel when you see him in a full-page ad, it makes you feel like he's on the cover. Right, yeah. How old were you when Dave Weckl kind of showed up in your life? Middle school. I, I bought his second album, Heads Up, Sight Unseen. I just saw him in ads. I was like, I got to go check this guy out. His kit looks cool. He plays traditional grip. <laughs> right. Totally. So, so I bought that record, and that just changed my changed my world. That was the first time I heard music that I was like, I have no idea what's happening, but I really like it. Yeah. I remember, like, there'd be, you know, one or two songs per album where I could identify a backbeat. Um, but other than that, I was just like, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to jump in the pool with this guy. Like, I can't find a place to start to practice along with it and actually for me dave uh i didn't get him as a drummer first he was a to me he was an educator first because i got the back to basics videotape oh right classic i think in that video i didn't even know i was pretty young i mean i, I didn't know that he was you know i didn't know what fusion was i mean to me music was whatever was on the radio i hadn't I didn't have a driver's license, so I wasn't at the point where I was driving to Tower Records and discovering albums yet. It was just kind of whatever my father gave me and whatever was on the radio, that was music. So I thought Dave was just a teacher for a long time, you know, and uh, I remember just watching that and 
I remember feeling a little helpless when I saw how much he could do with three notes because he has that whole section on like triplets of like right left kick and kick right left and kick left right and I was like this is silly like I thought I had that bottom thing down just you know and then I hear him play it and I'm like holy hell you know and my hair will never look like that and <laughs> it was just it was it was intimidating but inspiring but I I I don't think there was ever a time where just I mean, just from that videotape alone, he he was elevated in my mind to like he was like my guy then, you know, because everyone when you're in junior high, you have your guy that you kind of battle with your buddies about like, man, Tim Alexander is the best in the world. And, you know, Buddy Rich is the best ever. Whatever's hip at the time. And I remember to me, it was like, okay, well, if I get into that conversation, Dave Weckl's my go to guy. Yeah. And and I'll invite everybody over to my house. My mom will make sandwiches and we're going to watch Back to Basics. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, like I said, I mean, there's, there's drum gods. And what's always funny to me is thinking like they're drum gods to us, but we can also go to the mall together and no one will stop us. Like, right. <laughs> right. It's the most important thing in the world to us, but in the real world, uh, you know. They're not. You, you can't like go to Cheesecake Factory with Dave Weckl and think that the waiter's going to give him a discount. It's like <laughs> just a dude eating some food, man. Uh, and then in our world, it's like, yeah, but he's a god. I mean, you should give him the food for free. So uh, <laughs> he's he's definitely a a genius artist and musician. There's no question about it. Yeah, I think that's something that's really important for people to understand is to be at the level that some of these guys are on their instruments. Something has to be sacrificed. So sometimes they might say, oh, man, this drummer is like, he's cool, but he's super quirky. And it's like, yeah, but look how brilliant he is on his in- instrument. Of course he's quirky. He must have been practicing eight hours a day yeah. f- for his formidable years when he should have been socializing and being in public school or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, so when I, you know, if I see somebody like a Vinny or a Weckl or or Gad, you know, there's always going to be a, a little a- allowance for, okay, well, whatever quirks there are, you know, that's the sacrifice for being one of the greatest at this instrument that's ever lived. Can't can't be super normal and be a genius. It's just not possible. <laughs> no, it's not. So far, it hasn't happened. Yeah, I think Einstein married his cousin. So, um, all right, moving on uh, to the electronic insights. You guys covered the one mic setup. And I think recording is especially now kind of more relevant than ever because everyone gets their laptop with some sort of recording program already loaded on it. It's so affordable to have like a home studio and there's some pretty decent mics that can pick up the whole kit. And so you guys covered what it's like to do um, something with one mic. So what was the main focus of that? The whole point of it was to get people to listen to themselves and, and, and hear, because there's no excuses. If you only have one microphone, there's no excuses. Like, I don't get enough bass drum. I don't hear enough snare drum or the cymbals are too loud. I mean, that one microphone is giving you back exactly what you put into it. Um, so our the writer, John Emmerich, he, he did a room mic far away and, and then a room mic five feet away and then an overhead. And he recorded it all, and we could you can compare the different sounds for balance. Um, when it's direct overhead, you kind of lose some of the bass drum, but you're getting more clarity. Sure. The the far room, you're getting the most ambient sound. So that was the goal was just to get people used to hearing, like listening critically to themselves. Right. And just using one mic and trying to get a full representation of yourself without having to rely on close mics and too much EQing. Just put a mic up, move it around until your kit sounds like you want it to sound like. I think it's hard, honestly, to get your kit to sound better with a full mic setup than it is with one mic yeah, so much phasing problems. Um, totally. And and people that just 
don't realize, you know, how to EQ a rack tom and how that EQ is affecting the floor tom and what is resonating from your floor tom going into your snare mic and all that stuff. And it's really tough. And and sometimes like we'll do on mikeslessons.com, we'll do like a one mic setup uh, video, you know, lesson. And when we're done, I'm listening back to the video itself. And I'm like, damn, I'm pretty sure that sounds better than my normal setup. Like I, it's really hard to beat a one mic setup. Um, now, if you had for you personally, let's say, you know, under a million dollars, if you just were going to go for a one mic setup, do you have a specific mic that you would use? Uh, any large diaphragm condenser. Sure. I mean, I, I have a M Audio Solaris that I think it's under 500 bucks. That sounds amazing. And I use that as my, my room mic. Um, or a Shure KSM32 or 44. You, I mean, you want to spend as much as you can afford, I think. Right. But, yeah, just one large diaphragm condenser. Or an SM57. I mean, you can, you'd be able to get that to sound good, too, and that's an $80 microphone. Right, yeah. Uh, a lot of times for my students, I recommend the MXL V250. Uh, it's, it's a ribbon mic, but it doesn't sound anything like a ribbon mic. I don't know what's going on over there at MXL. Uh, but the reason I usually recommend it is because... Uh, Different online retailers will have it as their deal of the week or something, and it will be down to like fifty dollars. Oh and goodness! Wow. Yeah, no, it's silly, and it's a two hundred dollar mic, and it it. But it wasn't until I got you know because I was buying mics left and right, Audio Technica mics, AKG mics, um, and it wasn't until I got into about the eight hundred dollar price range that I was able to find a large diaphragm condenser that sounded better than that mic. Wow. Um, without without a ton of EQ, you know, um, and that's something I think people need to understand too is. They hear things like, oh, man, well, you have to get an AKG D112 for your kick. And and I'm always telling my students, if you don't know how to mix, that might be the worst mic you could possibly get. Like, that mic is really great if you actually know what you're doing. But that's not a stick it in your bass drum and get great tone mic. It actually is the opposite. It's really woofy, um, very little attack. Um, and so I think, like, something like the Audix D6 is probably the best mic I've used where I put it in the bass drum and without any EQ it actually sounds like a kick mic, you know, right away. Yeah, right. Um, and the Shure Beta 52 I like a lot too. Yeah, I use that one a lot. The, the Audix is good for just getting, I call it insta-kick. You throw it in, yeah. it sounds good. Sounds like a bass drum. It can be limiting once you dig into mixing. Totally, totally. And it, and it as far as I know, the, the mic itself is pre-EQ'd. Right. Um, so they've kind of taken some of the guesswork out of it. So, yeah, I mean, I love, if I'm, if I'm recording on my own and I have my choice, you know, a lot of times I'll go, D112 um, and then a SM, is it 91 or 81? The one, the pyramid mic. That's for the click, and then I'll use the, you know, I'll get all the thump out of the D112. So, but I think what's what's crazy is the D112 with that green ribbon around the edge has so, it's so visually famous that people just see it in every studio. So they think like that's the mic. And it's right. Like, yeah, that's because that's that guy that's using it has 20 years of experience with it. It's the same way with uh, Sennheiser 421s on Toms. Totally. Yeah, they totally. sound great, but they're humongous mics. You got to have them on stands. The clip on Sennheiser E604s or 904s, which what I use, sound just as good. They sound, and they're got to be a couple hundred bucks cheaper. I've been using the AKG 214s as my uh, room mics and overheads, and those are like the 414s, but they're just um, the diaphragm's just in the front of the microphone, so it doesn't pick up any sound behind it, um, and they're and they're about half the price, so. Um, I've been using those, and I like those. Now, when it comes to, like, two mic setups, I think sometimes people don't know, like, so should I get two overheads? And in my opinion, I, I think you should start with one overhead and then one kick mic. Yep. Um, 
And I mean, is that, do you feel the same way? Yeah, totally. You should be able to get a good mono sound. I think sometimes stereo is overrated when it comes to drumming. We, we tend to want this super wide spread with the hi-hat really far on the left and the ride cymbal far on the right. But sometimes it sounds better just to have it in one spot. It sounds more natural. Yeah, just mono drums sometimes is the way to go. It forces you to be more balanced and you don't have to worry about phasing. Where would you put your mono mic if you're just on one mic? You know, I'd probably just go from behind me. So I'd take the boom stand and go behind my drum throne and then try to get it right in the middle of the kit um, and then use a bass drum mic inside the kick. And um, it, I would either do that to really hear the drums kind of in my face or I would just use it as a room mic kind of, um, you know, in front of the drum set. But usually if, I, if it's just one mic, I do a boom stand over my back, really. What about you? Uh, usually about five feet in front, uh, lower than, than what you would think. My room's kind of small, so the cymbals tend to get kind of abrasive. Um, so I would have it down almost like the top of the bass drum hoop. Okay. Um, sometimes even lower and facing the ground if I'm not getting enough low end out of it. And are you able to hear the, the drum, like the snare rack and floor? Yeah. Yeah. It's all pretty, I mean, it's, every room's different, but in my room, it was like the cymbals were just overpowering no matter what. Right. So I had to just go lower. That's probably one of the things that people don't understand about miking, and they will understand as soon as they start it, is I can't tell you the, the, the recipe for anything because it's all based on my room with my kit, with my heads and my playing. And, and as soon as I move my drum set to another room, I, I'd have to start almost from scratch. you know. Right. Um, and so each room is totally different. And, um, and, it, and yeah, it really changes how the microphones affect everything. For this setup, I used a single AKG C214 large diaphragm mic right above my drum set, about four feet above my tallest cymbal. Now you can hear that I get a great cymbal sound and really clear snare and toms, but I am missing the low end of the bass drum by having it directly above the kit. Well, let's move on. Uh, gear review stuff. I mean, I'm I'm super interested in this because I I don't think there's a company that I'm you know as obsessed with that I don't play for um, other than Craviato. Uh, when I was a DW artist, he was actually working there making snares for them, and I have a I have a couple Craviato DW snares. And then he went out and made his own company, and I think. Johnny Craviato is definitely kind of one of the kings of artistry in our industry. And you got a chance. Were you the one that actually reviewed the Vintage Series kit? I did. It was nice. And um, this is a poplar kit, right? Solid poplar. Yes, it's not not plied, steam bent, solid poplar. Yeah, it was it was pretty sweet, you know, and it really to me it felt like everything you'd want in a vintage drum without the quirkiness. Um, whether or not that's worth nine thousand dollars or whatever the cost of it is oh so it's on sale okay cool (laughs) that's for you to decide this is their their cheaper line yeah oh (laughs) fantastic but i mean it is it's a collector's item it's it's priceless it will be worth more than that eventually uh but it does bring up a discussion of of new versus old and like i'm i'm a vintage freak but i don't gig with my vintage stuff very often so 
this would be something I would be more likely to take to a studio or maybe on tour if I had a really good road cases for it. Yeah. <laughs> For you guys out there that don't really know kind of the poplar thing and kind of what people are going for with a vintage sounding kit, you know, poplar is a less dense wood than maple or birch. Birch is even, you know, more dense than maple. So birch is going to give you more volume um, and less warmth. It's going to be the most attack in your face kind of drum. Then when you get down to maple, you're getting good attack but you're actually finally getting some warmth a lot of warmth into the drums and a lot of this stuff has to do with the bearing edges as well and then when you get to poplar which gretsch is used as their inner plies i mean the the um the the gretsch recipe is a poplar sandwich or no i'm sorry the the brooklyn recipe is a poplar sandwich so on the gretsch brooklyn kits you've got maple on the outer maple on the inner and then four plies of poplar on the inside so people have used poplar and drums before to get that kind of vintage sounding kit because it's a less dense wood so it's going to give you a warmer tone um i mean can you kind of give them some examples of other vintage kits um i think if you're going to pick one it would be a 60s ludwig okay which i believe is maple poplar oh really okay um there's stuff it really it's all kind of similar because slingerland did the same thing it's three ply maple poplar i have a kit of theirs from the early 70s um and i have a slingerland kit from the 60s that's i believe mahogany and poplar um so they all use poplar and then the new uh so the new uh what is it broadcaster is the three ply uh, maple poplar maple right Right. yeah yeah so that's and i i got to play that at nam and yeah, that was definitely, as soon as you hit it, it was like, okay, this is that vintage kit. So, and vintage kits, guys, just so you know, they're not better or worse. They just are. They, you know, when you're getting a vintage sound, you're, you're probably going to be thinking about playing in a certain way and getting a certain thing out of your drum set, you know, where if you have like a brand new DW drum set, that's going to be a very focused in your face kit, especially if you put like some double ply clear heads on it. You know, you're going to be able to play a billion notes and probably hear every single note. Where when you have a warmer kit, if you play a billion notes, they're going to run into each other. So um, I think somebody like, you know, Matt Chamberlain and, and Billy Martin, they are perfect Craviato endorses because every note they play, it, it kind of has weight to it and it hangs out for a while. Right. Know? And they play more kind of earthy, organic music most of the time. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, I was actually surprised at how great Justin Brown sounded on a Craviato kit. He's a, obviously a very tasteful jazz drummer, but he can be a, a note dense guy if he wants to. And uh, and he still sounds great on those kits. So, so, so did you, you got to play this drum set? Yeah, I did. I took it to the studio and messed around there for a while. It was a bigger kit. It's not a jazz kit. What were your sizes? It was a 13, 16, 18 toms, 22 inch bass drum and a seven inch deep snare. And they all had the complete round over what they call baseball bat edges. So it was all fatness and punch, but surprisingly more presence than I expected. Okay. They had a little bit more crispness on the high end that I don't get out of my old Slingerlands. So they would kind of, they would project more than I think. Like I've, I've taken some of my old drums out and they sound great where I'm at, but then I hear somebody else play them and they sound kind of thuddy. 
these, I think, would wouldn't have that study. Yeah, there's that definite, uh, definite kind of player's drum versus drummer's drum. You know, some drums when you're playing them, it sounds like heaven, and then when you go out front and someone else plays them, you're like, "There's no way that's what my kit sounded like." Right. And I remember for me, it was always Yamaha was the opposite. Like I'd play them and it was okay, but then I'd go out to front of house and have someone else do my sound check, and it was incredible. You know, they just projected so well. Now, so for a lot of people, even myself, I don't know how you guys do the review stuff. When you guys get a kit like this, do you change out the heads or anything, or do you just play it stock, just tune it up and play it stock? My general philosophy is to not change anything. I don't have to. So I play it as it is, uh, with with the exception of the front bass drum head. Okay. I will almost always just swap it out for one with a, with a hole in it, just for, you know, for tuning and muffling and all the, all the experimentation that we do but generally it's how it how it comes is how we test it and if if the heads are junk then it's going to affect the review so your overall view on this kit is it is dope oh yeah i mean it's it's about as high end as you can get uh for me personally i i wouldn't need it because i already have vintage drums i would probably go for one of their more esoteric hybrid shells or, or cherry or something that's a little more modern sounding but yeah, the general consensus is if you want a super high-end drum that sounds like the best of any vintage drum ever made, this would be it. And then does this come in all of their gorgeous Craviato finishes? Because uh, I'm looking at it in its own, I'm seeing it in Silver Sparkle on their website, but do they have it available? Do you know? I believe it's only three finishes. I think it's Champagne, Champagne Sparkle, which is what I reviewed, which looked absolutely amazing. Uh, and then red sparkle and silver sparkle, and they're lacquers; they're not wraps. Oh, nice. Okay, so they're definitely going for kind of, um, you know, other companies do that too. Where twenty years from now, you'll be able to pick out what you'll be able to say, "Oh, that's a Craviato Vintage Series," because you can see the finish, and it wasn't in the other finishes. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. That'll be a cool thing, and it'll hold its value to that. All right, so. Before we wrap things up, we're going to get to our pick of the week. And the pick of the week, guys, is just a chance for us to alert you to something. It can be a video. It can be a product. It could be an educational item. Uh, just anything that we want to let you know, hey, this is really cool. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. So, Mike, what's your pick of the week, buddy? I got to go with the track Got a Match by the Chicory Electric Band featuring a very young Dave Weckl killing it. That That track just changed my world. Super fast, super clean, the, and the drum sounds are so contemporary. You, you, it sounds like JoJo Mayer or Mark Juliana or Zach Danziger today. Really? And this was from, I think it was 1987. Highly recommended. It's my, probably my favorite Weckl track of all time. My pick of the week is an audio thing as well. It's an album called Elron from the band Bark Market. Uh, so Bark Market was kind of probably one of the most influential bands to all the bands of the 90s that were trying to do the rock thing but doing it in a new way. Um, I honestly don't remember who the drummer was, but it was the first kind of album I had where modern rock was being done in a way that was just different tonally. Like, everything about it was different. It was a very different album, and it had, I'd say, 50 to 60% of the songs were in odd time signatures, but kind of in that Soundgarden way where I could actually... I could actually hang with it. I could actually figure it out. It wasn't like going from Pearl Jam straight to Tool. It was kind of like this bridging the gap. Um, so, and and what's funny about it is, like a lot of bands of the '90s that were doing some kind of you know something somewhat modern, it still holds up now. So when I listen to Quicksand or Failure or 
bark market. I'm like, man, they should have just waited 15 years to put this out and it would have been and it would have been mainstream. You have to have those bands to kind of break the mold and then someone else can do a poppier version of it and get it on the radio and everything. So yeah, it's called Elron by Bark Market. There is a little bit of cussing, so parents, I do apologize for that. <laughs> uh, all right, buddy. So uh, we will be back next week and we will do more stuff for you guys. And please, if you guys like the podcast, we don't need anything from you other than just go into, into iTunes and just give us a positive review. That really helps us so that more drummers can find out about this podcast. Mike, do you have anything else to add to today? Just practice, man. Just practice. I think that's the theme, man. Just just practice. Your, your high school teacher kind of boiled it down. <laughs> just practice. Just practice.